You don't have to think clearly necessarily to be a good speaker, but you have to think clearly in order to be a great writer. How did you figure out how to write viral articles? I was like, well, hold on a minute. Let me do this math. If I get a million people to subscribe to my newsletter and I email them every day, I bet you I could make like $2 million a month doing that. That changed my life. Make it concrete, make it visual, and like make a promise at the top. And then there's like subcategories. So like women who want to sleep with werewolves. Yeah, that's like a thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a thing. Tell me about the writing. So the vision, the copy, talking to customers, taking notes. How did you write the vision? So usually what I do is I steal from a lot of stuff and I mash it together. Yeah. Um, and so... I like branding and I like words. Words are very important to me. Every word has to serve a purpose. Hmm. And so I'm a big fan of like um, uh, 1980s and 1970s Wall Street Journal and New York Times ads. Hmm. I love those ads like before the internet existed, like when they would buy out a full magazine or in like their own newspaper or another newspaper, they would buy out these full ads. And I love like old Porsche ads, Rolex. So like Rolex had this beautiful campaign years ago where it says like, the men who, what was it? The men who create the world wear Rolex. And they would do like an ad with like Dwight Eisenhower wearing a Rolex or some ship captain in the, in the Navy. And I was fascinated by that type of like sophistication. And I was also fascinated by cheekiness. So like the ability, I'm obsessed with this idea of how to be professional yet informal. Hmm. And so Rolex is a good example of that. It's a fancy watch, but it's meant for diving and sports. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I'm really fascinated. How can I be like cheeky and fun, but also professional and elite? And yes. so I took uh, British Racing Green. That's one of my favorite colors. It's the color of a lot of old Jaguars and old, yeah, uh, yeah, old yeah. Triumph motorcycles. And then I like was trying to craft the phrasing and the copy on the website to be uh, like Felix Dennis, who wrote this book, How to Get Rich. Um, it's almost like Richard Branson and Mick Jagger had a baby. Like He founded Maxim. Yeah, Maxim Magazine. And so I wanted like a professional and elite, but a um, like fun. And so I would just, what I would do is I would get on the phone and usually what I do or I do Zoom, I like will say phrases, phrases that I like and I'll look at the reaction, just like a comedian of the audience. And I'll be like, mm -hmm. that one didn't hit. Okay, I got to change my phrasing a little bit. And then I would like use a different phrasing. And like, for example, I would say like the word business group therapy and like someone, I like their eyebrows move. I'm like, oh, gotcha. Okay, mm -hmm. that's the phrasing I got to keep with. And then I would try all these other phrases and it wouldn't hit. So I would just like constantly talk to people to see the reaction. And then that helped me make the copy on the website. But um, I'm really good at collo colloquial copy. You yep. know, like um, um, there's like a bunch of different types of copy, but like a lot of people call me a copywriter. But that's like when I think copywriter, I think of like direct marketing. Mm -hmm. So if you go to like a website like Motley Fool, yeah. you'll see 3000 words of copy and they're trying to sell you on something. And what they do is almost like UX and or like building an app. They're actually building an app, but they're doing it with copy. But instead of building an app, they're convincing you to like fall down the slippery slope and buy something. And there's like frameworks to do that. Mm -hmm. I do colloquial copy, which is almost like designing a website on Photoshop and making it look good. Yeah. And uh, that's what I'm good at. And so I know how to like write words to make people feel a certain way. You know, Harry Dry? Yeah. So he texted me this week. He said, copy is like food. How it looks is as important as how it tastes. And yeah. I thought that was just money. That when you're talking about Photoshop, the copy's got to look good. And I think a good copywriter is almost like vertically integrated with design. Well, you, yeah, exactly. The whole thing has, I call it texture. Hmm. Your, your landing pages need texture. They need to feel and read a certain way. And hmm. so if you give me a blank piece of paper and I could just, I could write something and probably get someone to buy, 
but it's a lot better if I can do both. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I think copy is more important than design. I can, if I can have, I can have really bad design and not achieve my outcome. I could have really good design and achieve my outcome. But if I had both, it's ideal. I liked that point about talking to people. One of the things that I've really noticed is that good CEOs are sloganeers. And I see this in, I'll sit down with really high level CEOs and I kind of get to know them. And so I'll have dinner with them once, twice, three times, four times. The average person, if you become friends with them, they tell you different stories all the time. Good CEOs tell you the same story over and over and over again, time and time and again. And what I'm noticing is they're doing exactly what you're saying. They're telling the same story and they're just tweaking a word here, tweaking a word there. And they're so in love with their project that they see every social interaction as a chance to test out their pitch. Well, it's propaganda is what it is. <laughs> totally. So like exactly. I, I like read a new history book every week. Yeah. And like when you read about great cult leaders, even great normal leaders, US presidents or Hitler, they like it's repetitive and you like it's propaganda is what it is. It's manipulation. Yes. Hopefully you're manipulating people to do good things, but in some regard it's it's bad things, but I love like reading about how people manipulate one another's words and one of the common threads is you have to repeat shit constantly. You say the same stuff over and over and over again and you have to use memorable phrasing. Yeah. So like at Hampton we have a confidentiality oath. So you have to like, you can't talk about what is happening in Hampton because that ruins the, the uh, people wanting to share. And so we were thinking about words and um, we were thinking about like what we, could, what we could say. And we had this like sentence that said it and it was just not memorable. And we're like, nothing, no one, nowhere. Hmm. Uh, let, let's just say oh, uh, nothing, no, or nothing, no one, nobody. You know, like just, y- y- that, that we just use those three words instead. Yep. And like, just don't talk anything to anyone. Yep. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so like I like phrasing like that that makes things memorable because the words actually matter because if it's not memorable, no one will do it. Totally. The line that I have been thinking about for years is that in the human mind, the way that we process spoken information is that repetition is indistinguishable from truth. And that there's something about the human brain that when it hears something over and over again, it just buys into it. Yeah, and there's like phrases that people say that they don't even make sense but because they're such good phrases you just do it and it changes your behavior for example my biggest pet peeve there's this phrase called when people say i might as well so someone will be in line for something and they don't even want the thing that they're in line for and they say i've been in line for an hour it's gonna be another three hours i might as well just keep waiting i'm like you might as well not like you like you shouldn't wait like if you don't want it bail but because that phrase is so good, like you use that, you use that phrase to like keep waiting in line. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like it's it, that's always fascinating to me where there's like phrases that makes that 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 are good sounding, but it's like no, you might as well not. You might as well bail. You're using that phrase wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, and that's always been fascinating to me. So as you're doing, you read a book a week, and you're really interested in these thrillers and these big history books, and how is that? influenced your writing so uh i read a lot of that stuff because i feel like i'm a soft person and it's fun to like you're not soft well it's fun to like read about like a shipwreck it's funny it's the second time you said that today really well the first time you said that was i'm soft the second time is i need to prove to myself that i was a good on yeah which is actually pulling from the same thread i'm all it's always motivated by some high school girlfriend who dumped me (laughs) you know or who made fun of me like it's all a big grudge to like get back at people who made fun of me or to prove to my father that i'm good enough but uh like I like reading about like um, books of like where people suffer extreme hardship yep. and it makes me feel better about what I'm going through. So that's one of the reasons why I like that. 
like Lewis and Clark, like baller. Mm-hmm. Sacagawea just having this baby and strapping it on her and walking across unknown country for two years. Like, yeah, she could do that. I could do this stupid blog post. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So that's why I like reading that stuff. I mean, these are great storytellers, so there has to be something there, right? Take I, a book like American Kingpin. I know you love that. I book, love so American King, Kingpin. So um, what I, what really fascinated me is how they can describe in-depth scenery and feelings with simple language. Hmm. So, for example, Ernest Hemingway will, or or like some of these great authors that I love are like J.D. Salinger, like these like people, like if you read Catcher in the Rye, like it's like a pretty interesting book in that it's like impacted america but like there'll be a sentence like he was sad it just says he was sad yeah and like it's i'm always fascinated about how you can use simple language and simple sentences and short sentences mm-hmm. but it be in depth so like i uh, do you let you ever use that website hemingway app yeah of course so if you go and put in hemingway or um some of like these great american authors they write at like a fifth grade reading level yeah and like, I'm always, it's really cool how you can like create something that uh, is a bit in depth or has a lot of meaning to it with simple language. And so mm-hmm. that's one of my big takeaways. I also, uh, just the research they do. So um, what's the guy who wrote uh, Hamilton? Uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda. Oh, no, oh, he wrote the, the play. The play, Ron Chernow. Chernow. Yeah, he's... So he wrote Titan. He wrote Titan. Or what's this guy? Kit Caro, Robert Caro? Robert Caro, yeah. Caro. Like every sentence has a purpose. And it required him to go and research it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that intentionality and that like rigor is mm-hmm. very, very inspiring. I remember in the Titan biography, he describes the way that Rockefeller wore a tie when he was like 12 years old. And I just, I remember just being at my house in Brooklyn at the time. And I was just like, that is such insane research. It was amazing, right? It's just like a crazy flex, but... I think about this a lot when I'm talking to Rite of Passage students, talking to new writers, whatever it is. What people will try to do is they'll try to like on their personal website or in their writing, they'll try to flex. They'll be like, I'm the chief marketing officer at this place, or I've been doing this for like seven years. It's like, don't write any of that. Yeah. Just write in a way where you can have a series of words, a sentence, an observation that shows me your experience. I don't want to see it explicitly. I want it all to be implicit. And when I see the tie description and Titan, I'm like, okay, now I can trust this guy. It's cool, right? Way more than the bibliography at the end of the book. And you know, yeah, I'll tell you a funny, this could be a good clip for you. I'll tell you a funny story. So I like American Kingpin and here's why. So Ross Ulbrich, Albright, he was the guy who created Silk Road. They sold like $2 billion worth of drugs in two or three years. It was like the eBay of drugs and murder. You could like hire someone to do crazy shit. I knew him before he got busted. In San Francisco? In San Francisco. I went to a party and I was flirting with this girl and he busts in the door and he's tall and he's good looking and he was like pretty charming and he stole this girl I was with, but I was like not even mad because I was like, it's a good looking guy. I don't blame you. And this was like 10 years ago or 14 years ago. And um, I just like said a handful of words to him and, and friended him on Facebook and it turns out he lived down the street from me in Glen Park in San Francisco. Come on. I get home one day on like a Tuesday and there was uh, on the news and there was something like going on down in our little village, in our little neighborhood. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And I see the headline, the founder of Silk Road, Ross Ulbrich, was arrested at this library five doors down from my house. And I'm like, oh my God, I knew that guy. I knew him. And I went and took all the pictures I had him in on Facebook and took him down and saved him. And then I read the book, American Kingpin and Nick Bilton. Yeah. Uh, he uh, did such a good job of explaining Glenn Park and 
when Ross got arrested, mm-hmm. he did. He's like, this bakery was here. I was like, yeah, I know that. That's the Brazilian bakery. I know that one. And he explained all this perfectly. He goes, the wind was blowing this way, and his shadow was to his left. And I like researched, like Nick, how the hell did you know this stuff? And he like wrote an interview where he's like, I looked at the weather. Uh, I looked at like where the like wind was blowing. Mm-hmm. I saw Facebook photos of Ross, and I saw that like he was facing this way. And he and also Ross was like writing in his diary uh, daily about what was happening. Yeah, you know, I read all of that, and I baked it into the story. And I was like, that was so beautiful. I felt like I was there. He did such a good job. And in fact, I, I was in that neighborhood and he did such a, an effective job of doing it. And so it's just, it's just amazing how much like rigor goes into that shit. Totally. So Caro has a few things. So when Robert Caro was first writing his biographies of Lyndon B. Johnson, what he wanted to do was interview the people in the Hill Country, actually right out by your Airbnb. His LBJ's place just short of Fredericksburg. And... He would go out and wouldn't get good information. So he was living in New York at the time, and he said to his wife, we're moving to the Hill Country. So they lived there for two or three years. And the thing that Carol would always say is, make me see the scene. Make me see the scene. Make me see the scene. So what I did was I went to Carol's ranch, and I brought the first Carol. Oh, and you read it? And I was in his childhood home, and I was reading the book in my right hand and looking at the replica rendition of the house actually on his ranch and just looking at how Caro described things. But I think that's the work. You actually move there. You do these interviews. They take forever. And the other thing that I think is really interesting from an interview perspective that I learned from Jimmy Sony, who just wrote The Founders, guest on this podcast, is so many of the best interview anecdotes come from people who are outside of the main stage. When you think of the founders, you think of David Sachs, you think of Peter Thiel, you think of Keith Raboy, you think of Elon Musk in terms of the history of PayPal. He said, no, a lot of the best insights come, came from the guy who interned there, the guy who worked there for two and a half months, had one interaction with Elon. And because they're not media trained or something, there's an honesty and a purity to their observation. I also think that a lot of these biographers or people writing nonfiction books, I have no proof of this. I think some of them, I wouldn't say they have a lie, but I think what like they don't let the truth sometimes get in the way of a good story. Hmm. Like, for example, I'm reading this book about the Korean War. Okay. And this guy's like writing about this soldier. And he's like, uh, and as he cl- closed the door, he thought about X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, that th- th- that was 70 years ago. You don't remember what you were thinking as you closed that door right. more, more likely than not. But it's not a lie to say he thought because he probably thought about that another time or he probably like told this right. guy, you know what I mean? But you don't let like you're like, well, but I could weave that into the story. And so what it kind of learned, what I kind of learned was like reading a lot of these books is um, you can kind of like like, for example, if I'm telling you a story where I'm like, yeah, I was driving to the driving to my car and the guy next to me was telling me the story. and We were just laughing. Well, he didn't tell you there was three other people in the back of the car who yeah, was also yeah, chiming yeah. in. It's like, just leave those people out. You know what I mean? You, you don't bring that into the story. Yeah. And so like when you're writing like an interesting story or like uh, you, you, you can pick kind of certain parts and every once in a while you could fudge a little bit of it. It's like, look, it doesn't matter. Like mm-hmm. that, that's not a meaningful thing. I, but I can make that to make a, a more cohesive story. I think that's what a lot of them do. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if that's a fact. But tell me about the these early days of the hustle. So I want to hear the genesis of your interest in copywriting. I want to talk about the pen names and I want to hear... How did you figure out how to write viral articles? You told this one story about a news article that you saw. You realized it wasn't very good. There was 
something in the news article that he had made a bunch of money or something. He said, wait, hold on. Let's bring that yeah, they to missed the headline. The yeah. So tell me about this. Yeah. So I started the hustle because I um, was always interested in sales. Like I always wanted to like convince a girl to like me like in high school or like convince someone to like me or 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 learn how to get voted class president, whatever. Were you class president? No, but <laughs> it didn't work. Uh, I was still learning. Um, but I, I had a, I opened up a hot dog stand in college and I was like, all right, I'm going to use this to like sell hot dogs, whatever. And then I was like, this is exhausting. How can I like sell to like more people and not have to work all the time? And that's when I learned about copywriting. I took Neville Medora, who's now my best friend. I took his course. Did you know him at the time? No, no. Wait, you took his course. Then he became like your best friend. Now he lives right I took his street. course and then I cold emailed him and I said, I'm going to host an event in San Francisco. I'm going to take care of your accommodation. Fly up here. I'll pay for it. And it was really just like 10 of my friends and we each paid like $10 to pay for his $300 flight or something like that. And he stayed at my couch in my house in San Francisco and we became best friends. And so that's how it worked. Uh, so yeah, and so he's, then he was the best man at my wedding. Um, so thank you. And so I, um, I like learned about copywriting and then I read the biography of Ted Turner. That's the guy who started CNN. CNN yeah. yeah. He's, he was a wild guy and he was like from the South. I'm from Missouri. I was living in Tennessee, but he created this like New York media company and i was like i'm an outsider i love news i like content what can i do and so i was like let's just what if we blended this copywriting with like some type of journalism and we created a a, a way that i can make the money with content because i love content i love news and so i started i started a blog and the problem with the blog is that it was like impossible to get people to continually come back to your website hmm. like it was really hard like buzzfeed let's say they have 100 million uniques a month they have to get you know whatever 100 million divided by 30 to come every single day yeah. But then I started learning about email. And at the time, no one took it seriously. It was almost mostly like people who did newsletters was like the Motley Fool, but then like other, like not other, but different scam, scammy, shady, like affiliate sites. What year was this? I got interested in it in 2014. Okay. Um, I started the company in 2016, but I was playing with email in 2014. Yeah. And I was like, well, but hold on a minute. Let me do this math. If I get a million people to subscribe to my newsletter, and I email them every day, although they're not different people, if I get a 50% open rate, so a million times 30, if I email them every day, that's uh, 30 million people, 50% open rate, that's 15 million people, 15 million people a month, I bet you I could make like $2 million a month doing that, as opposed to getting them to come to my website constantly. And so I pitched a bunch of people this idea. And they were like, no, that's nonsense, that won't work. And like the founder of a big company, um, he is the CEO of, I'll tell you after, the CEO of a large like digital media company. He was like, that's bullshit, man. That's never going to make any money. And I'm like, man, do the math. If you're on your phone, who cares if you're on Chrome, Safari, or in your email app? If I have your attention, you're going to come, like I'm, the ad will work and I can, you can read my content. It's going to yeah. work. And so I just launched this thing and the hustle and I created a blog in order to get email subscribers to the, the newsletter. And so, so that was your one core metric, email subs. Yeah, it, it was opens. Yeah. So how many people okay. opened up my newsletter every single day? Cool. And so the hustle now, we're at close to 4 million subscribers. So four times 30, the math doesn't exactly add up like that. But let's say that's 120 million uh, people a month, uh, not unique people, but like reads a month. And yeah. I'm like, that's like the same. I mean, that's a lot of people, but that's a lot of reads. Um, the math is just there and you only need like three people to run that. Um, and so I just did that math and I was like, I think this could work. And so in order to make it popular, I think in the first year we got 150,000 subscribers, year two, 500, year three, 1 million, year four, when we sold it 1.7. And 
the first 150,000 just came through blogging because I knew how to blog and I knew how to get people to come to a website. And I would go to like different subreddits that I thought. So my whole strategy was go to where the people who you want already are and siphon them off. And mm. so now there's Twitter. But back then I didn't use Twitter, but they were on Reddit. And so they'd be like on this subreddit called self-publishing. For some reason, a lot of self-publishing publishing people. My content was the hustle, it was business news. And it was for mostly uh, young folks, which is mostly young men who would read it. 70, 60% young men. And I, this, pub, this self-publishing subreddit, I thought that might be where some of our people are. So mm -hmm. I'm like, what content would get popular in that subreddit? And so I knew a guy who was kind of a sleazeball at the time where he was making 60 grand a month. And basically what he would do is find books on how to sleep with women and like take all like the interesting topics from it and then like merge it into his own book and then put like a sexy title on it and then like get fake reviews for it. And then that would like go to the top of the Kindle ranking yep. and he would make money. Huh. And I was like, I think that's crazy that you're doing that. I'm going to write a story about it. So I wrote a story about it. And then the next week, I said, to top it off, I'm going to become a bestseller. I'm going to prove that this is nonsense, that this is that you can do this and you shouldn't trust everything you read on the internet. And so we found out that uh, romance novels had the most liquidity, meaning the most amount of new books and the most amount of buyers. Yep. And then there's like subcategories. So like women who want to sleep with werewolves. Yeah, that's like a thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a thing. Well, if you look at the fucking movie uh that movie that came 50 out. shades of gray well no there's some other movie with a guy named taylor what's it called where he's like, i don't know they're this, like vampires they're like vampires this is all news to me it's like hot vampires who turn into werewolves that type of thing uh news to me uh anyway there was another like category of like uh hot military guys you know like if you're like a hot marine or yeah. seal and then me and my old life yeah <laughs> and so we made it like a, a werewolf who become like a navy seal and slept with women or something like that and we put like some crazy title on it or some crazy uh, this was a book that you published yeah so what we did was we plagiarized another book so i just found another book that was popular and i just took the i took the content i barely changed it and it got approved through kindle and we put a sexy title on and then we went and got a bunch of fake reviews and we were number one in our category. What? Yeah. I had and, no idea. Yeah. And then the um, publisher, Harlequin, was like threatening to sue us the second week we launched the company uh, because they go, you plagiarize. And we're like, look, guys, we're actually trying to help you. We're not making fun of romance novels. We're just trying to prove that Amazon is kind of like na being negligent here and letting like people do crazy stuff and that you shouldn't trust everyone just because they're a bestseller. Like, it's, and we're actually helping you. And they're like, we get it. Just take it down. And so anyway, I published those two blog posts and we had like a million people to our website because I posted them on that subreddit and we went viral there, which went viral in this other place, which went viral in this other place. And I would do wow. that every month. And so another one was like Soylent. Soylent's like slim fast for nerds. Okay. My publication, I'm a nerd. It's like nerd. That's a good colloquialism. Slim fast for nerds. Yeah. That is a great example of what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, I lived on, well, we had a guy live on Soylent for 30 days. And we like posted it in the subreddit of Soylent. And so just doing those crazy things over and over and over again, we got 150,000 subscribers in one year. And then our pop-up would say, oh, wait, no, 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 the pop-up. Well, while you're here, the hustle is actually uh, like a daily newsletter. And we write these crazy blog posts every once in a while. If you want our newsletter, sign up. And if you don't like it, we'll Venmo you a dollar. That was like the... the that's what the copy said. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah, because that's how people would chatter in a bar. 
Yeah. It's like, yo, now another pop-up. Oh, come on. If you don't like it, throw your yeah. Throw your dollar. Well, it's ADA, attention, interest, desire, action. So that's like what's that? So uh that's just a, a framework I follow. It's a it's it's I didn't make it up. It's an old thing. So attention, grab someone's attention, interest, get them interested. Make them desire it by uh, telling them facts and how it's going to solve their problem. Get them to act. So, for example, if I'm going to tell you to drink more water because it's good for you, you maybe will do it or maybe you won't do it. But let's say you're trying to gain muscle. I say, look, have you ever seen those big beefcakes at the gym who walk around with gallons of jugs of water? That's an attention-getting like story. <laughs> you see, the reason they're doing that is because water builds muscles 30% faster than not drinking water. This is fake, obviously. I'm making this up. And the, the desire is like, so if you drink like eight gallons of water a day, uh, you're going to get bigger muscles at a 30% faster rate. You're going to feel better in this way and your skin is going to look great. So all you have to do is drink more water and specifically eight jugs a day. Like that's how I would convince you to drink water. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. And so I would. And then at the bottom, buy water, buy our water. Yeah. For the action. Exactly. Cool. And so that's like ADA is like a way to like grab people's attention who are new. So transactional mm -hmm. traffic mm -hmm. and to get them to act. And mm -hmm. so I would do that with the pop-ups and I would do that with like the footer, uh, you know, uh, at the bottom of an article, you got to imagine someone's flow. They're there. You got to get their attention. Yeah. And so you just, I would do that constantly. And that's how we get subscribers. I heard that your onboarding email for the hustle was sick. Yeah. So that's another thing with a lot of websites. There's this part that I call the forgotten text. So when you sign up to a newsletter, the thank you page after you sign up is typically like your Very favorite. generic. Yeah, because you're just, and you installed some software and just thanks, check your email. <laughs> totally. And so I'm like, we got to make that special. But then it's like the welcome email, nine out of 10 times before, at least before we started, it was just like some generic, like, thanks for subscribing, click here to confirm. Instead, I was like, nope, that's forgotten text. We got to use that. And so I wrote this like really good in-depth email where I was like, uh, what just happened was magic. You see, as you entered your email, a little bell went off in our office. And when we heard that bell, we went crazy. I just saw my head of operations, Kara, she just ran outside and hugged a guy. And another and another employee, John, he's now doing 15 push-ups because he's so excited he had to work <laughs> off some energy. And then this other person is going to do this other thing. Wait, I got to go stop them. They're going to get in trouble. But hey, before I leave, I just want to say I really appreciate you for signing up. You're going to get your first email tomorrow. And it means a lot to me that you're here. Like I would do things like that. And at the time, our brand was like a little bro. -y. So like we could get away with being a little obnoxious. But that was like the whole trick was like the forgotten text. It always has to be good. You just said at the time, dun, 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 dun. one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten from you is when you want to research how another company does copy. Don't look at what they're doing now. Oh. Go to the Internet Archive and yeah. see what they did in the early days. That's so good. You got to go to Web Archive because it's kind of like if you're a 13-year-old kid and you want to be a pro basketball player, don't exactly look at LeBron today. Go and look at what workouts he did when he was 13. Yeah. Go and look at what stats he was doing so you can track your way up there. You know, it's not exactly fair to compare yourself to the final version. Right. And so what I like to do is whenever I'm researching a company or trying to get ideas for how they phrased or positioned their product, you go to Web Archive, and you, I, what I tend to do is I find news articles in the Wall Street Journal, TechCrunch, wherever, where I'm like, all right, they're at, they just, in this article, they announced Series A, or they announced uh, that they're at this much revenue, or they announced that they're expanding this product offering to this other thing. I'm like, all right, cool. Let's see what the phrasing was three months before that. Because if they raised that funding round, they're not, that means things are working. Let's look at what things were when they were nothing and they had to make it work. Yeah. Not 
where they have all these other offerings and they're going broad. Let's see, figure out exactly how it started. Or for example, uh, you could figure out like what type of culture the company had. Like, were they zany? Were they like, what, what? Because oftentimes when you're starting a new company, you're like, well, Shopify does this and it's all professional and polished. And it's like, okay, yeah, but everyone knows Shopify. Let's see what they did when they had to stick out. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yep. yep. So yeah, web archives like the best thing ever. I think a really good example of this is Morning Brew. Morning Brew had that amazing homepage. Click your enter email. It was so simple. And now if you we were to say, hey, Morning Brew, they've done really well. They sold and you were to go on their home homepage. It no longer has that. Do you know, we did that too. Or I'm not part of it anymore. The hustle did that too. And it's so stupid. The, here's what Just happens. Adding complexity. Because you have, I think, the, I don't know how many employees the hustle has a lot. Morning Brew probably has two or 300. It's because people who didn't start it and didn't look at the numbers early on say, well, GQ.com has an open homepage where you can click around the articles. Or this website has an open page. No one has just a plain email inbox, like an email inbox. And they're like, yeah, but that thing worked really well. But all these like committees are like, well, but they do this, they do that, they do this. And you're like, yeah, but this worked. And so anyway, it's like a committee making the decision, not necessarily like looking at the numbers and figuring out what's right. And you just copy other people. I like this meta strategy for starting media companies to look at a space and then counter position against New York media. So Ben Thompson does this against something like Engadget. New York media had a very standard way of talking about tech. Ben Thompson comes in and says, we're going to analyze the business model of tech. There are all these sorts of standard ways, and there are many media companies, especially over the last decade, that really were saying, hey, New York Media does this, we're going to do that, and we're going to be able to reach people because it won't be so sterile and sort of in the homogenous circle jerk. Yeah, I mean, Barstool is a good example. ESPN, you're wearing suits, you're behind a desk, you make some jokes, but it's everything's like pretty uh, above the line, mm-hmm. and they're like... Eh, yeah, we're going to appeal to like a little bit of the lower common denominator, a bunch of like, you know, pizza bros just sitting around, you know what I'm saying? And, and it works. And so, yeah, I think you can look at what, whatever's working and go the opposite. Mm-hmm. Talking about this book that you brought, Elements of Eloquence. Why'd you bring this? You All right. One so tell me about it. I just started reading this or I, I, I read a lot of it and I'm going through. So you, you were talking about copywriting. And so I'm obsessed with phrasing. Yeah. You ever listen to Scott Galloway? Yeah. He's beautiful at phrasing. I like people mm. like that. Or Felix Dennis, this author of How to Get Rich. Tell me about Galloway. What does he do so well? So he, he, I don't think of him as a great phraser. I think of him as really good at other things. So what am I missing? He's lyrical. He's like a rapper when he when he talks. You know, yes. like the rhythm is wonderful. Yes. And I really like good rhythm because that's another way that you captivate people's attention. Mm-hmm. So like when to leave spaces, when to talk really low, but then when to get loud, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, like people who are like have that rhythm. I'm, he's also funny. And he's funny. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. ever watch his L2 videos? He would come out with these one, this one video every Yeah, No Mercy, No Malice. Oh, so it was great. Good. And he would, but he would use these phrases. So like good. he would call Amazon, Microsoft, I forget the other one. He would call them the Four Horsemen. Yes. And yes. like he would like talk like really slow like this, but then he would like make us like, but who, anyway, who cares about those losers? But anyway, like he would like make these like, he like, had this beautiful phrasing. So I love phrasing. Same with them. Um, Felix Dennis. Yeah. So like he would hear like he would write his phrasing will be beautiful. Like he'll say things like, so why am I here sitting writing this book? You may ask because it's fun. Like, you know what I mean? Like he'll just like he'll talk to the reader in a really nice way and ask himself questions. And I really enjoy that. 
So I was with Darmesh Shah. Do you know who Darmesh is? CTO of HubSpot? Yeah, Darmesh, Darmesh is kind of my hero. So Darmesh is this Really guy. good writer. You know, Very good writer. You know, he signed up for Rite of Passage, and I was super excited. I was like, yes. Did he attend? Could be in the course. I don't remember, but- I bet you he did. So here's why. Or but I what happened was it. I called him, and I was like, or, or no, I emailed him. I said, hey, do you want to hop on a call? And he basically responds, not really with an email, but with an article about why he doesn't do any meetings. And I just, I was like, that's badass, man. Like He's you cool. had this in an article. And it was funny because if he had sent me that, I would have been like, maybe gotten offended or something like that. But the fact that it's in an article, an article for posterity, it doesn't feel personal. I was like, I respect it. Darmesh is awesome. So Darmesh had a previous company that he started and he got a little bit of money. And then for some reason he wanted to go get his PhD or what did he get? His, his MBA at MIT. And while there, he met a guy named Brian and they had this idea for a company and, and Darmesh goes, all right, I'll put up the first 500K for the business, but, and I'll be the CTO, but no one can report to me. And that was the rule. And that company ended up being HubSpot, and now it's worth like $30 billion. He's very likely a multi-billionaire. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it's publicly traded. So yeah. at any given day, it's worth between 20 and $30 billion. He's also a very prolific and successful angel investor, so he's worth billions of dollars. Um, and he told me, uh, I get dinner with him every once in a while because he bought my company, and so I've become friend friendly with him. He told me, he goes, um, copywriting is the most underused or undervalued uh, asset in business. And so I wanted to get really good at it. And so he studies it and he reads a lot about it. And he told me to do, read this book. And the reason he told me to read this book among, for a, a bunch of different reasons was he gives a keynote every year at Inbound, his conference. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I read in a book that like to be, to be funny or being funny helps people remember like what point you have to make. Yeah. And so this guy, Darmesh, he's an engineer. And so he goes, so what I did was I took HubSpot, I took a hundred employees at HubSpot. I broke them down into like sets of 10. And I delivered this speech that I have to 10 different groups. And before I did this, I built this plugin on Zoom that would count how many times they laughed and when they laughed when I spoke. And in this book that I read, you want to get a laugh every 90 seconds or something like that. And he goes, so I honed it in and I looked at my software. I'm like, all right, I didn't get a laugh for two minutes here. This time it was three minutes. All right, I got to put a joke here. Got to put a joke here. <laughs> and he honed this in and that's how he did it. And his, that was his goal two years ago was to get laughs every like 90 seconds, something like that. This year, he said, he goes, my goal was to um, say more memorable phrases, but I didn't know how to do that. And he goes, I bought this book and it helped me come up with memorable phrases because this book it's called, uh, what is it called? The Elements of Eloquence. It's basically different tools to make things more memorable, to make phrasing more memorable. And this is what he used to make his phrases more memorable. And so I wanted to learn about it. And so I've got a few interesting ones. So uh, I know that you're like into the Bible now. You said you recently converted. And so uh, there's a few phrases in here that I thought were cool. Have you ever heard of a, you said you knew this, but you don't remember the words. And these words are hard to pronounce. So excuse me if I screwed up, but. Uh, a, a polypeptan. I don't know what the things are and how they relate to what they are, but when you say them, I'll be like, oh, I probably know that. So what this, is it? All right. So this one is when um, you say the same word or close to the same word in the same sentence, but, this, but that word means two different things. Okay. So uh, here's a biblical one. So this is from the Our Father. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. So trespass twice. And so that's like an interesting way to, phrase, uh, to phrase that, that I love. Another one is, um, 
in the Bible, there's a ton of these, but it's called an antithesis. So it's like you say one thing and then you say something that is like the complete opposite of it. Hmm. So here, let me find a good example. Those who can do, do. Those who can't, teach. So you're you're trying to like explain like something, and so you say this thing and then that thing. Would it ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country can do for you? Would that be antithesis? Yeah, or uh, and some of them like blend, but like another one would be like um, we choose to go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Exactly, that's one. Not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Yeah. So instead of just saying like. Uh, we're doing this because it's hard. You say, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Right. And that's like really good phrase. There's, there's a ton in the Bible where it's like, to everything is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck, a time to kill, a time to heal. So like these, like these phrasings are really fascinating. I wonder if Eminem read that book. Oh, maybe. And here, here's one more. There's another one where it's called the... Uh, I'll have to fight it. It's called a, uh, I think it's called a mer meritism. Meritism. And it's like, um, this one's when you use words for words sake. So for example, if I wanted to get the attention of a room, you just say everyone. Instead, you say ladies and gentlemen. Hmm. Or uh, when you're getting married, uh, uh, in, uh, in health or in sickness. You could just say all the time. Right. In health or in sickness. Or like a, uh, Instead of saying he ate everything, you say like, uh, or you say hook, line, and sinker. He ate, he ate the fish and the hook, line, sinker. He, okay. It means he ate a lot. Well, what I like about this is it flies in the face of remove everything unnecessary. Exactly. And that's something I believed in for a long time. And then I realized your writing needs to, to have some soul. And, you, and the phrases like that at, give soul to it. You know, like one, st small, one small step for man, a giant leap for mankind. Yep. Like, though, like that's, very, that's a very memorable phrase. It was planned. No, he didn't mean to say that. He what? He meant to say. Uh, so there was a, a there was static in the in the when he was speaking. So they couldn't entirely understand what he said. But I think he said one small step for a man, a giant leap for mankind. Yeah. And so they that a got removed. But it's so much better. One small step for man. Is just, that's everyone versus him. And so, uh, but then, but that's Jeez. that's an example of another thing I said. Man and mankind. Yeah. And so. Uh, Anyway, I like those types of phrasings. I, I think that they're really fascinating. How cool is it that for such a definitive moment in human history, the technology glitched to dial up the poetry so much? Yeah, it, it worked out beautifully. And, and I think that's happened a lot of times. There's been like a lot of phrases that like people uh, didn't say one thing, but over the years, it's like become a thing. There's a story, I bring this up whenever... Students will ask me about imposter syndrome and they'll say, oh, you know, I have imposter syndrome and how can I get rid of it? And I go, you'll never get rid of it. And it's something that you're just going to have to deal with. And there's a story where Neil Gaiman, the fiction writer, he goes to a party and there's all these big name people there. And Neil Armstrong basically says... I have such bad imposter syndrome. There's people here who built businesses. They won Olympic golds. They've written great books. All I did was go where I was told. And if Neil Armstrong has imposter syndrome, then you will have imposter syndrome. By the way, that's a great line. I just went where I was told. <laughs> I like that. Uh, but yeah, that's I interesting. I love that story because it just like, it's just really the knife in the stomach of imposter syndrome to me. Yeah, it, it definitely doesn't go away. And I've been fortunate to have those like meetings with Darmesh and 
these people at HustleCon and like literally billionaires, people worth $10 billion definitely doesn't go away. Tell me about the combination of headline first two sentences that you really focused on at the hustle. So in the world of social media, but even not social media, you don't know if it's just a magazine. Not, you know, let's say you have a, a 1% click-through rate. That means that if um, uh, 100 people see your headline, only one actually click it. There's a world where you can change 1% to 10%. Mm. So um, a lot of writers at The Hustle, originally they would write these amazing articles, but their headlines sucked. And I'm like, dude, what's that, what's that phrase? The tree falls in the woods and no one's there, there to hear it. Like, I'm like, dude, no, one, no one's going to read this shit that you just worked all this work on. You got to spend time on the headline because you can change 1% to 10% pretty easily uh, once you kind of master an art of like headlines. And then in the world of your phone, similar, I mean, TikTok didn't exist when we started, but this is pretty obvious that you have to grab someone's attention right away. And so I need the headline. So the, like on Facebook, for example, the way your eyes go are headline, description, picture. Like that's usually the story that you're telling yourself or like the, that's like the order that you're going like that. First of all, I try to think in headlines. Hmm. J just like, uh, so like if I have a good idea for a story, I think like, what would the YouTube title be? Yeah. Or n not necessarily because I care about the clicks, but because that just helps me like frame it. You know, like what's my hook? But then the, the opening line is just, is just as important because I got to grab their attention because I usually the way it works is a lot of people say something's too long. And I, and my opinion of that is like, no, that it's not that that article was too long. It's that your slope wasn't slippery enough. Mm. You know what I mean? Like you got to get someone to fall down that and you have to craft it early on. Cause once someone starts reading, they're more likely to read through the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And so you totally. get, you got to make that slope really slippery to get them to fall down it. Otherwise it's worthless that you spent all this time working on this thing. Lord of the Rings is who knows how long when you watch all the movies, people do marathons in a day. You have comedians who do these great stand-up sets that are an hour and a half. You have Rogan, the most popular podcast in the world. Is super Three hours, long. yeah. The idea that we're moving to short attention spans, I don't think is quite right. I think that I don't think it's, it's right either. adjacent. It's like we're moving to shorter patient spans or something like that, that people want payoffs faster and faster, almost with what you were saying about Darmesh. Like in a comedy sketch... That's really good. It's an hour and a half, but you're getting a payoff every 60 to 90 seconds, just like what was going on in that speech. Yeah. And I mostly don't believe in like changing of trends. Like I read Robert Greene has this book called Human Nature, and he tells a story about how like some of the earliest writing on walls was a generation complaining about the generation after them that they were lazy. Hmm. It's like that will always exist. You know what I mean? And people will always be impatient. Like it's always been the same. So like, uh, if you read a lot of history, you're like, oh, hey, people nowadays are complaining about World War III, and they thought the Korean War was going to be World War III. Like Churchill said, World War III is about to happen. Wow. Yeah, like people always think that like one thing is going to happen. I mean, so anyway, my point being is like, I don't really believe too much in like trends uh, like that. Human nature is almost always the same. One of the pieces of advice that I really like, though, that I think I'm going to implement is either write a piece that's less than 500 words or write a piece that's more than 2,000 words and that in the middle, it just doesn't work. Like, it's funny, when I think of the most popular things I've written, they are things like The never ending Now, Certain Tweets, 
that are just these short pieces, super distilled, literally like a screenshot. Or I wrote Peter Thiel's Religion. I wrote a piece called What the Hell is Going On in 2017 or 2018 that just went absolutely viral. And I think of those as like these definitive takes. Someone's going to sit down, maybe make a cup of joe and actually read it very intentionally or just, hey, click it, open it, read it. Hey, that was pretty good. Ship it off to someone who's sort of in the flow of the day to day. And there's something weird about that middle that generally isn't as good. Yeah, and, and we found that with the hustle. So that's kind of where that idea came from was like, we would write these Sunday stories that would go viral all the time. We had this guy who worked for us named Zach Crockett. Hmm. Most people have never heard of him, but you definitely have seen his work because he would go every Sunday, we'd write something, it would get 5 million views or 2 million views, like constantly. And he was a, he, he made hits. We always just say no deep cuts, hits only. Hmm. He just, he wrote hits, you know, he was like the Lady Gaga of internet writing. He just like <laughs> pumped this shit out. He won an indie band. And, um, what we found was like either things that are long defined as 2000 or more or things that were short, that is kind of like people want one or the other mm. um, and they serve two different purposes and anything in between was a little bit uh, no man's land. How did you craft a team? You had staff, you had Zach, you had Trung, all of these writers who individually have a sense of distinctiveness, a vibe, a personality, but then get them to write for the hustle in a way that was consistent with the brand, but also not in a way that was Procrustean where you were yeah, I mean, basically morphing them and shaping them to where they lost their essence. We, I think, I don't know how many people we had hired over the years, 50 or 100. When we sold, we had 30 or 40 people. And of those like 30 or 40 or 50 people, I feel like 30 of them are like popular in the newsletter space now or own like an agency or own like a newsletter company or own or are like prominent writers. And so uh, one of them, I take a lot of pride that we found, what I always say is I'm gonna buy your stock early before the market finds out. Yeah. And so we got really good at that. So Trung was like not a writer. Trung was, he worked at an analytics company. I don't even know what he was doing. Uh, Steph was a product manager. I don't even know, at top tail. Like she wasn't like, um, and so, and Zach, one of our best writers, he worked at a, uh, he was a, just a blogger. Um, and so I would just like find people who had good headlines or who could uh, like Trunk didn't have a Twitter when he started working for us. But I would do a few things. One, I would search for people who were writing for fun. So that's what Steph was doing. She had a personal blog and she had one yeah. headline that convinced me that she was great. It was to be great, just be good consistently. Yes. So I saw that and I DM'd her. I go, that's an amazing headline. You want to interview for a job as a uh, doing whatever? I forget what her role was, but uh, that's why I found her. With Trung and Zach, I knew they would be good because I could, usually what I look for is I call it the bottom fourth of a resume. So what you studied, if you played sports, things that you put at the very bottom, and I ask you about that. And if you could tell me a story about it and entertain me, that gives me proof that you are an interesting person and you have an interesting opinion and you might be a good writer. And then what we did was, we would take our email, our daily email, and we would ask them just to rewrite it by hand for a few weeks just to understand our voice. And then we just said, all right, get after it. So that you hinged a lot on that bottom fourth, what they did, making sure that, hey, they have some interesting opinions. And yeah, like if things. you spent like $200,000 on college and you can't 
entertain me on like your favorite class, you're a loser and I don't want to be around you. Like that's my philosophy. Which <laughs> and then like, the other thing was, are you still pretty big on these real work tasks? Yeah. Like I believe in copy work. That's how I learned how to write. Tell me about that. So copy work is, uh, I think I originally read about it in the Ben Franklin biography. Yeah. So Ben Franklin used to use it. And then Hunter. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson Hunter, wrote every sentence of The Great Gatsby so he could feel what it was like to write a great novel. Yeah. That's it, badass. It's badass. That's and badass. Like Judd Apatow did that with comedy and mm -hmm. SNL scripts. And so I wrote about this thing called copy work about basically up until like the 1920s or 1930s. This is typically how we taught children how to write. And when you think about an instrument, uh, we're really good at learning instruments. So like if I want to teach you how to play the piano, I'll teach you a little bit about how to read music, but I could even teach you not to read music. And I could just be like, look, copy me, do exactly this. And then you play Jingle Bells and then you play Happy Birthday and then you play a more complicated song, but you're copying other people's work. And then you're like, all right, I want to like learn like rock and roll. So I'm going to learn how to play like Nirvana and then Green Day. And then I'm going to like combine all this. Boom, I've got my own thing now. Yeah. That's the best way to learn how to play an instrument my opinion, it's also the best way to learn how to write, but we don't do that. And so what I did was I spent months just locked in a room doing this thing called copy hour, where for an hour or two a day, I would just take the best sales letters of all time and I would copy it by hand. And you have to do it with a pen and paper, not typing. I do it with pen and paper. And then I would like learn the texture of the writing. And I would see the, uh, the patterns of like great writing, even writing that I didn't want to emulate. But I'm going to steal that from you, steal that from you, steal, and I'm going to create my own voice. Um, and I do that with writing. And I think that's the best way to learn, in my opinion. What was the habit that you did for doing that? What you do, an hour a day for six months or something? Yeah, and I still do it. Like, right before I got to write something, if, uh, uh, if I have to write, I'll take, like, a book that I like, and I'll just spend, like, just 10 minutes just... Really? Yeah, like Anthony Bourdain, for example. He's a really great essayist, and um, he had some, like, good just like passages in his books. And I always thought that, um, I thought that he approached the keyboard with boldness and I appreciated that. And so I would just be like, all right, I'm feeling a little weak today. I need, let's get bold. And I would, I'll copy his stuff. Boldness. That's a big theme in the kind of writing that you, I got like a big tattoo go right here and says, uh, the, the hustle, I go, we're a pirate ship and every subscriber we get is a little bit of wind in our sails. And I have bold, fast, fun, BFF tattooed here because I believe that's my kind of my motto for business is bold, fast, fun. Bold, fast, fun. Okay, you're coaching me. David, your writing is sterile. It lacks boldness. What do I do? Like, you have to give me a topic. Let's talk about Rite of Passage. Like, okay. What actually, about Rite of Passage? So the homepage for Rite of Passage, I want to have, like right now, we What's have, you were made for more. And Harry Dry was looking at it. He's like, it can be better. One of the things that he always says, make it falsifiable, make it concrete, make it visual, and like make a promise at the top was yeah, one of the I big things that, that he too. was saying. And I just, I even well, feel like- what, what I would do if I was you is I would go through your testimonials or yeah. your reviews and find a line of inspiration. So like it could be as simple as like a, a crazy claim, like give us 90 days and we'll- I gotta, I would have to think, but like, we'll like turn you into like the greatest writer you'll well, ever be or something like that. This is exactly what, what Harry recommended when he sent me these loom video feedbacks. And he said, you have this thing towards the bottom of your page. That's super bold. And what, it's out there. What's the line? 38 people from our last cohort called it life-changing. That's a great one. And we had that all the way at the bottom. He's like, what are you doing? Yeah, that's a good one. Life-changing is a good one. So like like some type of promise with a number typically does well. 
uh, and then like a sub headline that it further explains it. Yeah. So like whatever, what would you say your headline was or your H1 or your title is? You were made for more. Yeah, I would make that like an H3. Yeah. Like that would be to get you to continue scrolling. Well, one of the things I found with boldness is I find that sometimes when I open a computer, it's like I'm in work mode or something. I'm a little scared or timid. But then if I'm just texting friends or if I'm in conversation with somebody and I'm sort of feeling a little hype, then I'll say bold things. And then what really helps me is to have friends say, hey, that's good. Like last night, I had a friend say, write that down. And I was like, yes. And so I feel like boldness is something that I can't consciously cultivate. But when I'm feeling relaxed and calm or little energetic and sort of in the flow, that's for me when boldness comes out. Well, then that's why I do copy work because that mm -hmm. gets me in the, the mode. And typically what I find, the, the good shit comes out in editing. And nine out of 10 times you write something and like the first five paragraphs, just delete it. Yeah. And then that's where it starts. Yeah. You know, after you're like five in, you got to get that crap out of the way. Yeah. And it's pretty normal. I think you have that David Ogilvy book on there. What did he say? I'm a, uh, I'm a lousy writer, but I'm a world-class editor or something yeah, like that. Exactly. Uh, typically that's how it works. You got to get the crap out the way. You know, it's like your warm up, and then your real workout is in the editing. Yeah. Fast, fun. Talk to me about those. Uh, I just believe in speed. I believe in momentum. I think when you start business or when you start any project, if you don't start right away and you, if you don't put some stakes on it, you're screwed. Mm -hmm. Meaning if you say, if you're fat and you're like, I feel fat and disgusting and horrible. All right, well, post a shirtless picture online and say in 60 days, I'm going to look better and I'm going to post another picture in 60 days and do it right now. You have that idea, do it right now. Mm -hmm. I like, I firmly believe in like, putting your back against the wall and there has to be stakes on. So what I like to do is like, if I think of something, I'm going to like immediately put it out in the world. So I feel pressured and I force myself to do it, or I'm going to put some money on the line to where I have to do it. So that's where fast comes in. I'm a big believer in that. What I do with my writing is if I'm at a dinner, I won't walk into my house until I've written out something that was an epiphany while I was sitting down. But the best thing I do is I have the, GPT-4 voice transcription, and it's so good. I mean, it's so much better than Siri. And I just open up my phone every day for something, and I just say it while I'm out on a walk. I say it right when I have the idea, and I never let the momentum, the fire, the roar of an epiphany, I never let that flame die. That's I do it right now. And I think what you could even do is have like a personal blog that you don't even share with anyone, and you just put it out there. So you're like, yeah. that's on the internet like it's it exists yeah maybe i'm not sharing it but i know it exists and so i feel pressured into like doing that now yep um which i have i have like a blog that no one knows about but like really? it gets like 100 people a day who somehow find it through search and i just like i put that out there and it's like i'm on the hook i so that kind of makes me feel on the hook so that's where being fast is and then i just like adventure and fun i don't know i just i love being a shithead and getting into adventures so what riders inspire fun for you embody that i like felix dennis because he talks about like some serious topics in a fun way hmm. uh i mean how to get rich was like the best but i don't read business books but i used to and that's the best one i've ever read hands down well who are some other fun writers um my friend neville medora like whenever i read his work i'm just happier because i feel like i'm having a good time mm -hmm. reading his stuff um who else is a fun writer i don't think there's that many that like i don't know who do you think i think mike solana is hilarious i don't he's just a twitter guy right yeah i mean 
he's so funny. Like he just has such a voice about him. That's my favorite thing about his writing. I just feel like he just injects you with just this shot of energy and it's funny. Like I just love the mix of fun and funny. Like even now when I'm reviewing our team's copy or writing something for sales or for something that a student will read, I'm just like, did this make me smile? Did it make you smile as a writer? I read something this morning. It was like, that was written under some kind of fear. I don't know what it was, but like that was written with your back against the wall or something. That was not written from a place of love and the flames of passion. Do you read history at all? Not as much now. Do you know about MLK's assassination? No. I love assassinations. I read a lot about them. So like there's only been four presidents who have been assassinated. You know who, do you know who they are? Hold on. Lincoln? Yeah. JFK? Easy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hold on. Lincoln, JFK. Who are they like to? Garfield. He was assassinated something like 90 days in. Would have never happened. And then uh, McKinley. Wouldn't have happened. So I've read all about the about their assassination. I just love assassinations. It's like a fun thriller. I love it because there's a beginning and a middle and an end. Yeah. Um, and so I recently, I read this great book called Hellbound. It's, or Hellbent, Hellbound. It's about the assassination of MLK. And so basically this guy, James O. Ray, he was racist and he was crazy and he assassinated MLK. And then he got away. And a lot of people don't know this. You know where they arrested him? They arrested him in England. So this, like 90 days after he did it. So he basically um, shot MLK, got in his car, drove off, and they, they didn't even see him. And he drove all the way up to Canada where he got a fake passport made. And then he flew to Portugal and then to England. And then on his way to the, uh, to back to Spain or to Spain, he was in the British English airport and he gave his passport to the guy. He put it into his pocket. And now as he's walking off, the security guard was like, dude, you have, is that a second passport that's coming out of your pocket? And he was like, oh, it's, uh, they spelled my name wrong. So I had to get it. And they're like, hold on, man, come here. What is this shit? Come here. And they, they're like, you have two passports, dude. This is shady. Come in here. We got to talk to you. And that's how they caught him. That's crazy. It was crazy. So he almost got away. He was on his way to, <laughs> he was on his way to Africa because there was like this racist government and they're like, they're going to welcome me with wide open arms. He almost totally got away. And that book, it's like 300 pages. I like read the whole thing and they did such a good job of like capturing my attention. Have you ever read Shantaram? Uh, Endurance? Shantaram. Oh, what's Shantaram? Okay, so Shantaram, fiction book. And I read no fiction. So I rarely I'm ever read. Recommending a fiction book. This is like, I'm recommending a fiction book. And I was with a friend and I was at his cabin one summer and he was like, hey, I know you don't read fiction. I have a 90 or 900 page fiction book. You have to read it. I'm like, there's no way that I'm going to read this book. And he reads awesome. me the first page and I was hooked and I read the whole thing. And it's this guy, Gregory David Roberts. And it's like half fiction, half nonfiction. And he basically is a convict from Australia. He escapes from prison and he goes on these wild adventures in India with women and drugs and crime and all of that. But it is so well written. And we're talking about fun. Like what the kind of writing I love is writing that's so descriptive that it almost makes me laugh. David Foster Wallace does this and Gregory David Roberts do it. And you read it and it almost is more real than real. Like usually 
if you're reading about something, it's less real because there's less information content. But if someone's really descriptive, they're like, it's like reality on enhanced mode. And this book has it. And what's so interesting is I love the book and Apple made a TV show about it. And I hate the TV show. It's just, it has none of the Gregory Roberts. magic. Gregory David Roberts has none of the, of the lyrical magic. And it was funny, like me not liking the TV show made me realize just how much I like the writing in the book. Some of the sentences will just, they'll just knock you off. Do you use Goodreads? No. You, you don't even know what that is, do you? No, I mean, I know what it is. It is owned by Amazon. You know what's funny about Goodreads? The reviews for a book on Goodreads are consistently more negative than they are on That's Amazon. That's why I use it. And they're so much more interesting. They're, and they're really negative. It's because I'm a big Goodreads power user. It's because the it's almost like early Yelp where you, they somehow think they're like a food critic when it's like, <laughs> dude, you're in and out. Like, uh, like and so people will leave these long reviews and they're way more pessimistic. And so anything that has above a, a 4.2 on Goodreads is considered like world class. Yeah. So I get most of my stuff on Goodreads and I track it all on there. Um, and so I like it because everyone's really negative. So, so tell me more about how you use it. Well, I've got like a list of like, so I'm going to go add David. Uh, Gregory what, David Roberts. Yeah, I'm going to go add that to my Goodreads. Sean Tarone. And um, that will be on my like my list. And then at the end of the week when I finish whatever I'm on now, I'll just like, what am I in the mood for? And then I'll just like click it and mm. get and buy it. And that's usually how I, I track everything. But I, Goodreads is my favorite place to get book reviews. They also have wonderful lists. So anyone can make a list of like, and then others will vote up something on the list. So it's mm. like, my favorite era to read about is um, like, uh 1880 to like 1920 in america oh so much happened then yeah there's a lot happened it was post-civil war so we were rebuilding things regulation didn't exist and so you get barons yeah you get these like crazy stories of like monopolies of like uh the sec wasn't real so um we we were still getting out of slavery so like racism is a huge issue and so you get these fantastic like riveting stories of like Mm -hmm. bad men and so that's my favorite era to read about and uh they'll be like the best books about the Gilded Age. And so there's like a whole section just for that, you know, who. Yeah. And so like, I, I love that era. That's my favorite era. So tell me about your reading. Like, how does that work? You do a book a week and you run a company, you have a giant podcast, you got super social, you got a bunch going on in your life. How do you do that? I'm not that social. Okay. <laughs> I'm not that social. Uh, I don't drink. I don't go to bars. Uh, so I'm like, I'm a loser. Uh, I exercise a lot and that's about it. Uh, so I read my book in the evening time is like, it's, there is no benefit in there other than it entertains me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, a 300 to 400 page books book is between six and eight hours of reading. And so you read way faster than I do. That's not that fast. I read very slowly. I don't read fast. I'm not a fast reader. I'm very average. I read very few pages and then i just think and think and think on it like i have totally stopped trying to read a lot like i just read very little and then well really like dive into it and like, i don't remember the last time like if you were to say six to 400 page book like at this point it would just take me so long i just can't actually read for that long in the first place well so i'll from like 10 30 to 11 30 or 10 30 to midnight I'm just reading like a history book and you don't actually need to read every word of it. Like right, right, sometimes right. you'll like mistakenly like skip a name and you're like, eh, I could figure it out as I go. Okay. So that's why you can do that fast. And so I do that at night on my Kindle and I'll highlight stuff that I think is cool. And then I'll just like refer, and then I'll write a blog post or write like a Google doc, oh, really? just kind of outlining some of the cool stuff that happened just so I remember it. 
Mm-hmm. And then during the daytime, I'll try to take half an hour to an hour and I'll read something that I think can enrich me. So like, I'm really fascinated with um, Berkshire. So basically Hampton's going well and we have some money and I'm like, how do we reinvest this? And so I'm reading um, a book that's like a complete history of all the acquisitions of Berkshire Hathaway, which is Warren Buffett's company. And it goes, and so I'll just sit down for like half an hour to the day and I actually sit at a desk and I'll try to like, uh, like take notes and be like, how does that apply to me? And that one I'll go real slow. And mm-hmm. so that's typically what I do is like, um, during the day, it's like an enrichment thing at night. I, I, uh, I only do what's entertaining. How did you write the company vision for Hampton? How did you think through that? One thing that I screwed up at my other companies was I was pretty good at writing about what we stood for and I was really bad at writing what we're against. Huh. And so I did a good job of like, so for example. That's back to boldness. There's a real bold component in that. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. So like Hampton has a masculine brand and it's not because we prefer men over women. We don't. We, I don't care if it's all women, but I want to, I want to attract people who are aggressive about growth business growth, emotional growth, things like that. And today they'll be like, well, that's too masculine. And I'm like, no, it's, it's, it's good masculine. I, I like that. And so like, I'm not going to like try to, uh, I don't care about pleasing that type of person mm-hmm. or, um, well, this seems really exclusive and not inclusive. People will say, I'm like, yeah, 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 it, it is. Uh, it's not for everyone. Uh, and you have to be of a certain caliber to come. Um, so like, I, I, I think like knowing like what you are and what, what you aren't is actually as important. And so I didn't really do that as good. So like at the hustle, I would hire people who would call themselves artists because I like art. And I think that those types of people are cool. But then I was like, dude, but you're just too slow. So like you, you take too long. So like, you know what I mean? Like I didn't do a good enough job of understanding what I stood against. I think it's either at the British library or the British museum, you can see the Magna Carta and it's from, you know. 10th, 11th century. 1215. 1215. There we go. And. Is that right? I think it's 1215. I don't know. June of 1215. That's impressive if you got that right. I, for some reason, that's the one fact that I ever remembered. Nice. (laughs) So I think that it's very cool when you see institutions, countries that where their founding document becomes this orbiting point. It's sick, right? I love that shit too. I was looking at a Greek translation of the word archegos recently. And as one does, as one does. And the variety of meanings is so good. The first is author, source, and origin. That's one way to interpret it. The second is pioneer, founder. And the third is ruler, prince. And which those are very different, very different. But I think that that author, source, and origin, pioneer, founder, ruler, prince would all be in the same thing. And the way that it relates to writing is I see a lot of writing as bringing those things together. You are this founder. You are an origin point for a lot of ideas, a seed. And then if it goes well, you become a ruler and a prince. And I think that there's something very deep. With starting a company? Yeah. There's yeah. something very deep in that etymology from 2,000 years ago that reveals something about what writing can be that only the written word can do. The spoken word can't do that. No. But the written word, one paragraph, like you said, and the way that it's locked in stone as the Magna Carta is, it has this gravitas, this weight that gives it a propulsion to actually go make change in the world. There's this, uh, you you ever watch South Park? Yeah, of course. (laughs) There's this episode where Cartman starts a crack baby NBA basketball league, which is ridiculous. 
And some person is trying to negotiate with him, and he invents the league. And he and he's like, "Look, ma'am, that's against the rules. I'm sorry, I can't do that." <laughs> and she goes, "What? Can't you change the rules?" She's like, "Look, ma'am, I don't make the rules. I just think them up and write them down." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "That's the greatest thing ever." And so, with like, uh, uh, so that's like that's kind of like a company where it's like, "Look, the rules are this," and like an employer or a customer is like, "But can't you change the rules?" It's like, "Look." I don't make up the rules. Look, I just think them up and write them down. Okay, I don't. I, I can't do that. The, the rules are the rules. Totally. So I think that that's like interesting. Where um, I think it's super fascinating. It, 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 I always think of, I think about the Constitution a lot because like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson were in their like early twenties when they wrote this thing, and I'm like, that's wild. That almost 300 years later, we like fight over what's the interpretation. Yeah, it's like it's pretty amazing, and they very purposely chose words, and it's really fascinating that someone could be that young. And like, be wise enough to like pick those certain roles, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's like, look, we didn't say you have to be happy. You can pursue it. You know what I mean? And like, it, it's always fascinating, uh, like the words they chose and how we're still like fighting in between, but we're still fighting in between the lines to figure out what it means. And I think that that's like really effective. Well, this is why if someone were to say, hey, what is one piece of career advice that you have? Like, one thing I would say is whenever you can be the person who writes, if you want to have influence, do it. Because it isn't that what you write, exactly that will happen, but the person who sets the frame has an invisible power over how a society functions, how a community functions. And just like you're saying, the founders of the Constitution set the frame. They set the Overton window that now we're battling against, but that is like this invisible grain that has such influence over how people live. And it forces you to think. So like, I hate presentations. I prefer narrative written oh, things. Yeah. So like, have, do you have any friends that work at Amazon? No. So you know what they do, right? Yeah, the six-page memo. Well, now it's way longer. So I've got friends and they're like, yeah. it's like a 40-page memo we got to write. Jeez. But I think that's beautiful because um, I think Stephen King said this in writing, uh, on his book on on writing. What did he say? He said, um, you don't have to think clearly necessarily to be a good speaker, but you have to think clearly in order to be a great writer. Mm. And like in that sure. writing, you will become a clear thinker. Like you can't bullshit when you write you actually have to think things through mm -hmm. and so i love like having people write stuff down because it forces you you're forced to be logistical and like think about what are you actually saying and how is this going to be implemented versus a presentation you can bullshit yeah it's funny paul graham did this interview with tyler cowan and the most i'm coming at this from a place of insane respect for paul graham the most revealing thing is Paul Graham's ideas aren't super well formed out in the interview. And he's almost a shell of himself. And what's so revealing is what Paul Graham does is he will spend a month or two in an idea. And that's how long it takes for him to find the bottomless pit. And if you talk to people who've gone through IC, they'll say he's so helpful because he's in the sandbox of things that he's written about. But in the Tyler Cowen interview, he's asking about like British housing policy. Yeah, he's one of my favorite writers, too. His, so good. His essays are very good. And he's pretty funny when he writes. Uh, he has, like, some type of, like... Simple, fifth grade, like Hemingway. Yeah, and he, what, he, he like, he has cute phrases, like schlep work. Like <laughs> schlep, schlep rock. Nah. Talks about that a lot. Yeah, he has a very memorable phrasing. Goofy. He's somebody who's smiling. He's having a good time when he writes. That was fun. It was good. I think we went over a lot of stuff. Hopefully the people liked it. That was good. Thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate it. I think this is going to be a big thing. I'm excited to see how all this has paid off. Me too. What a <laughs> chore.